So ladies and gentlemen, it is March. The weather is picking up just a little bit, just a little bit. And America is reeling from their daylight savings. Outstanding. And it was Public Enemy's Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, man, it's getting there. I've, the worst of winter is, I'll tentatively say, is over. Um, next week for me personally is looking pretty good. Got some above 10 degree weather, which is uh, what I'm always here for. I mean, it's been consistently raining in some fashion for the past like week and will continue for another week it was literally like one day where it was sunny and uh and then it started snowing in certain places in uh, the uk so yeah and it's kind of it's kind of adding it's slowly adding to my to my hypothesis that um year on year the seasons will gradually change just gradually just gradually because i remember last year i started wearing hoodies you know, around like the end of February, right? Right, the end of February, I started like being confident in wearing hoodies, and and I could still do that. I could have still done that in the February at the same at this time this year, but yeah, it just weren't the same. Just weren't the same, right? It's a little bit lesser now. It's a little bit more, and now we're getting to that point where we're having snow in March. Snow in March, yeah, is that what we're doing? So I'm just saying, if you haven't heard the hypothesis before, let me let me let me break it down for you. Okay, my hypothesis is that as ye- as the years go by, the seasons are gonna move just a little bit to the little bit to the right. They're just gonna keep moving themselves each until uh, at some point there's gonna be a year, and the subsequent years after that will just be like summer in November. Shower to sir absolutely go your track, right, literally shit like that, and then winter in fucking May, gonna have snow on my birthday, you know what I mean, just shit like, <laughs> I'm convinced, I'm convinced it's gonna happen, I don't know if it's meteorologically possible, um, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's, I'm, I'm getting vibes, I'm getting vibes, I'm getting vibes, so that's all, that's all, that's all, that's all I'm saying, but anyway, again, hope you all had a good week, um, I had a pretty slow week, to be honest, um, pretty slow, just um, doing bits and bobs here and there. Got some work on uh, this week, so that's good. Keeping busy. Um, but yeah, man, I literally just got delivered today uh, a desk mat. Um, kind of like, a, you know, one of them, just like long, just like long mats, you know what I mean? Where you could put your laptop, put your put your mouse on the same exact mat and, uh, you know, just have some space, have some space left over, right? And just, uh, and also, it's just because plainly for me, um, I uh need something above my desk because my desk is glass and as you can imagine it is extremely cold to the touch um <laughs> in in the winter time um so it's a bit late to get it but i got it and uh, a little bit of future proof in there and uh yeah it's beautiful it's nice and nice and soft uh, but it's nice and flat as well it's good i got some cable management ties to go with it which is a nice little, nice little shout shout out to minimalist desk desk setups um, 
unfortunately I got my shit um, uh, 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 shipped from China, uh, which I'm kind of I'm always I'm always hesitant on. I've I've had many of you know we've all had many a thing get shipped from China, right? And you see that, and you see it's you see it's currently located in Guangdong, China, and you're just like, ah, oh, fuck, it's gonna take a week. It's gonna take ages to get here. Right? It, it's just it it sucks. It sucks. I hate it. I hate it. Like if I ain't in Europe, don't talk to me. Literally, that's it. And you know this is this is what I get. You know, minimalist desktops is based in Australia. It had um, Australian dollars going on. Currency conversion rate obviously helped me out on that front. But I saw it and I was like, yeah, where else is it going to come from? Fucking Australia. They don't ship shit from Australia to the UK. They don't, they don't ship like shit like that here. So they so and Australia relies a lot on China for a lot of things, including delivery shit. Um, when I got my newer earphones, um, that those that's an Australian based company. Where did it get shit from? China, like it's it's, it's it's too obvious. Um, so yeah, you just have to just got to learn these things, man. Just um, roll with the punches. Um, I I do usually try to get my shit sourced from the UK, um, and if not Europe, I mean, uh, I recently pre-ordered uh, the new Sims vinyl of No Thank You. Um, but there were, and I like this. I don't know if every artist does this, right? I'm sure some do. Um, but I really liked how Sims did this. So she had um. She has uh, several versions of No Thank You on vinyl, right? So, you know, you've got the basic one, they've got like a white one, there's a red and yellow one, there's a, uh, I think a pink one, um, and uh, a plain red one as well. Um, so, yeah, there's different versions, but they were all different kinds of exclusives. So, one was a Rough Trade exclusive, shout out to Rough Trade, one was an Indie exclusive, one was a French, a US uh, I think the green one was a UK exclusive, um, and I got the Germany one uh, because the German one is fucking fire. It's like this white out, white on the outside, but then it has this green, like a like a like a tealish green in uh, in the middle, and it just looks super clean. It just looks super super clean. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, if if you're going for the link to the you know to the artwork, that's how some some of them go. Um, probably should have gotten the clear one, the whitish one, because uh, that mixes with the artwork. But I can I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist the the white and green. It just just popped off the screen for me, and I was like immediately cop. And the shipping wasn't that bad. It actually came to the same cost as if if I got it from if I got um, the UK exclusive um, or one ship from the UK. So. Hey man, is what it is. Why not? Anyway, why am I talking about that? Let's get into the show. <laughs> just, just chit chatting right now. Uh, right, let's get into the show. So we have a politics, education, film, and music topics for you guys for this episode. Really juicy topics here, and uh, let's jump right in. But formatties before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all in the full show notes, as well as the music and also other podcasts under the five EPN. And with that said. Let the beat drop, and let's get to the show. In a week where Sunak and Macron uh, announce a new detention centre in France, um, I mean... I mean, they're doing sign at least, but I'm still not really giving much credit. Um, we've, we've obviously, well, we're going to actually start this episode on that, so I'll hold off on that. Uh, Russia attack Ukraine uh, with hypersonic missiles. 
Uh, the BBC suspend Gary Lineker after his tweets criticising new Tommy immigration plan, which is also linked to our first segment. Uh, the Oscars came and went, which links to our, I think, third segment, uh, but not strictly based on the Oscars. I actually did write um, an article last uh, f- uh, like a few hours, uh, well, the day of the Oscars on on that Sunday. Um, uh, it's called uh, uh, the we don't we need we don't need uh, mainstream awards anymore. Um, so if you want to hit that, uh, hit the fifth element site in the full description, um, and uh, in the description notes anyway, show notes whatever you want to call them, and uh, yeah, give that a read, give that a read, see what you think. Um, but I'm not I'm, I'm going to be talking about the Oscars and be talking about someone specific. I mean, you see, if you if you've gone the full show notes, you know what I'm doing. So I don't know why I'm teasing it. But anyway, <laughs> and lastly, uh, Dick Fosbury, uh, high jump innovator and Olympic champion dies age 76 imagine actually changing the game like literally literally like you know people say oh he changed the game no i mean literally changed the game changed how people jump in high jump especially specifically but he literally changed the game before dick fosbury people were doing like like kind of like high scissor kick or jumping forward um kind of like doing like a front flippy thing going on um yeah but he just went i'm gonna do it backwards <laughs> and it was and everyone's been doing it ever since it's crazy um so yeah big up to fosbury rip and also literally just a, as just before i record bobby caldwell as well, as well uh, rip to him as well um so shout out to that because uh if you if you know me you know i love me some common who also had his birthday recently um so shout out to common top five uh did live and um, The Light is one of my favourite tracks ever, and that sample is Bobby Caldwell. So, um, yeah, shout out to Bobby Caldwell, um, RIP once again. All right, so let's jump into this piece um, about the immigration bill. So I've obviously been talking about this on and off um, all for the past, you know, couple of weeks. The demonic nature of uh, Suella Braverman, Braverman, uh, have you want to uh, slice her name? Um, and it's gone to a second reading, if I remember correctly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's basically the gist of it. Um, you can obviously look up specifics and we will look up specifics as we go. Um, but I was still, I was, I was thinking about this, um, Gary Lineker shit, which is, you know, obviously the, half the, uh, half the reason people have been talking about it in general. Um, and it's just, I like, really gone to people, um, but it doesn't really, there's no point, there's no point in talking about Gary Lineker. For me, I'm not going to talk about Gary Lineker because there's no need. What we need to focus on is the actual bill itself and how demonic it is. That's how I feel. So hence, with that said, I'm going to spin this article. Um, it's by Brad Blitz, great name, uh, via Byline Times. It's called, Is There Any Comparison Between Braverman's Migration Bill and Nazi Germany? Obviously, the uh, hint or the um, the assumption uh, from Gary Lineker's tweets and the reason why he got suspended uh, for <laughs> with, for hilarious reasons um, is because he likened the bill um, of question to Nazi Germany. Um, but I found this and um, there's some fascinating... It's just, it's just interesting. So uh, let's give it a read. Gary Lineker's comments on the illegal migration bill has attracted have attracted much controversy with the BBC issuing him with the warning following statements... Uh, that he was simply expressing compassion and would not be silenced. The charge against Lindeker was that by condemning the government's policies cruel before drawing analogies to Nazi Germany, he had breached BBC, BBC's code on impartiality. Excuse me. 
On social media, others went further, suggesting that the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, had taken a leaf out of Goebbels' playbook. Um, there was actually something I learned recently. Um, I think it was the concept of fake news. I think he invented that. That was like, that was like the first time someone said it in that particular you know, political context, um, which is fascinating to me. I think it was fake news. In, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in, if I think it was fake news. He like coined that. Um, which is crazy now, you know, obviously being used so widely now. Um, these analogies, while indicative of public outrage as legislation that would ban asylum and violate international law, warrant further scrutiny. First, there's the policy itself. The government is seeking to prevent anyone reaching the UK through irregular channels from seeking asylum, a basic human rights. In her own words, Home Secretary claims that she is prepared to push the boundaries of international law by introducing legislation that permits detention for up to 28 days, with no legal recourse. Second, there is the choice of language, the nationalist hyperbole voiced by the Home Secretary, and specifically the Prime Minister's claim that this policy was motivated by the people's priority. Okay. When they, uh, and I've said this before on the show, and I'll say it again. If they ever say it's within the public interest or anything of that nature, they're fucking lying. They're literally, every single time they say that is a complete lie to me, in my mind. In terms of policy, Lineker, however, well-intentioned, is off-base. The parallels he wishes to draw are in fact closer, get this, to 20th century Britain, a point made by historian Simon Schummer on Twitter. In many ways, the leg- legislation echoes the 1905 Aliens Act, which pulled up the drawbridge for after the mass emigration of Jews from Russian-controlled lands and other parts of Eastern Europe, and closed off the UK as a country of sanctuary. Yet, we do not need to reach into the annals of history to see how the right to asylum has been undermined and equally how it's inspired anti-immigrant movements in other countries, including influencing the current government. So let's stop there. Didn't even need to go to Germany. Literally could have stayed right here. That's what's so fascinating about this to me. Literally just rep- history repeating itself in some fashion. Absolutely crazy. But that would be said if um, we rejected Ukrainians, for example, right? Because obviously... That's the reason why there are uh, Ukrainian refugees at the moment. But this is about the brown ones. They don't want to say it, but it's about the brown ones. Okay? And the funny thing is, the reason why, and I've said this before in the podcast as well, <coughs> don't know why this is fucking me up whispering, but the reason why these people uh, from Afghanistan, for example, are actually, um, you know, uh, going, uh, coming here be- is because uh, they're mostly... English speaking and they have uh, ties to British military and there are also other countries that are um, actually uh, you know uh, post uh, colonial uh, countries uh, you know previously uh, ruled by Britain the British Empire hence why they come here so wanted to whisper that to you you know just from me to you anyway. Australia famously introduced the Pacific model, uh, which saw boat migrants uh, detained in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, Nauru uh, for processing. The aim being to ensure that they were never they would not enter Australia. Never mind that there were many refu- there, were, there were, that many were from refugee-producing states, including Afghanistan, Iran, and Myanmar. Today, Biden administration is looking to reintroduce Title Forty Two, a public health law which gives the US federal government the power to take emergency action, including by detaining irregular migrants and refusing entry. USA and Australia are far from alone. Restrictive immigration and tight border management is the norm. 
Over 40 states have erected walls and fences to deter individuals from entering, including enjoying the right to seek asylum. The above examples are also distinct from the experience Linux references. Nazi Germany was a refugee-producing state, not a host or destination state, though its borders remained open until 1939. What singles out the UK uh, now is that we have a government saying it will still welcome refugees, alluding to a tradition of hospitality, and yet is loudly shutting the doors to some of the world's most vulnerable people. As the UNHCR notes, there are currently no safe and legal routes to reach Britain, and no resettlement schemes operating. And uh, and as uh, there should be a D in there, and as a result, the government's plans uh, amount to a ban on asylum. The upsurge in the arrival of small boats packed with refugees is evidence that the UK does not currently offer a viable alternative. In this respect, the UK is notably different from the USA and Australia, countries that introduce cruel policies alongside functioning resettlement programs. And in the case of the USA, aid packages offered to neighbouring transit sites. The choice of words used to introduce the UK uh, government's legislation raises, raises several questions, not least because the latest evidence suggests that controlling small boats is not the people's priority. In a January 2023 report by the Policy Exchange titled The People's Priorities, What Must the Government Deliver in 2023? The author Ian Mansfield concluded following a poll conducted by People Polling that immigration issues were third in, uh, third place in terms of priorities for the government after the cost of living crisis, 26%, reducing NHS waiting lists and building more energy, uh, energy infrastructure, both at 15%. Uh, reducing immigration by stopping small boats crossing channels, uh, crossing the channel was prioritised by just twelve percent of respondents. Imagine that being a, imagine that being a really high thing for you. Like most, of, it's most of the time it don't fucking affect you directly, bro. <laughs> it really don't. Like it's not that deep. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think. I don't know any straight up refugees. Like, I know people from other countries, of course, right? I know people, you know, that uh, come from African countries, come from Caribbean countries, come from uh, America, maybe, or Canada, right? I, uh, Europe, even. Like, I knew her, I think, uh, I think she was German, In a, uh, had a girl in, uh, from university, she's German, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, I know people from other countries, but um, straight up refugees, I don't think I know any. Like the fact that you think this is a priority to you personally is such a so idiotic to me. Like you, you, NHS is you, bro. Like you, I, all of us need the NHS, and that's not a priority for you. Immigration is that's your number one priority. Come on. Anyway, how long we got? Okay, we ain't got far. Uh, ain't got far left. I was wondering if I was talking too much. All right. Uh, not surprisingly, this focus on small votes has raised the charge of populism. And, promoted, and prompted some to apply labels such as fascism and Nazism. Yet fascism is an ideology, with a core set of characteristics, and Nazism is a totalitarian experiment in genocide. At its roots, the Illegal Migration Bill exposes the absence of protection and the use of nationalist rhetoric to justify policies of exclusion contrary to international law and human rights norms. And from what it would appear, the views of the British public too. It's not, but maybe for some who knows. There are many uh, tragic ascend, ascend, antecedent, antecedents, antecedents. What the fuck is that word? <laughs> antecedents, uh, uh, which inform this debate. If Lineker and others want to draw upon the Jewish experience, 
then they might more accurately consider the plight of refugees uh, fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe, desperate to reach safe havens, only to be pushed back. Some of the most famous examples include Saint, the St. Louis, a ship uh, carrying 937 refugees, which is denied permission to dock in Cuba, uh, the USA, and Canada, and the Exodus, which was uh, prevented from landing in British Mandate Palestine. However, this is not an exact comparison. Not only were there only, uh, many of the passengers of the St. Louis eventually sent to their deaths, but we should acknowledge the role the agency uh, plays in the current flows. The passengers on small boats today will have transit transited transited through uh, both hostile regions as well as via safe European countries. Some are victims of trafficking and exploitation. Others are taking their chances in electing to reach UK. Yet, that is their right. As the UNHCR record, uh, records, uh, international law does not require that refugees claim asylum in the first country they reach or indeed other countries of transit. The idea that UK government is responding to the people of Britain by introducing these harsh policies when such claims cannot be substantiated further evokes a tension between nation and state, which has energised the extreme right. As Hannah Arendt uh, Rent, uh, describes in The Origins of Totalitarianism, got to say that three times, totalitarianism, uh, the privileging of the nation that is the people understood as collective over the state an entity bound by laws and customs set the scene for the unraveling of the previous political order eventually leading to genocide. With the Prime Minister and Home Secretary's recent speeches to Parliament, we get a clear indication that those laws and customs, including adherence to international law, are now hanging by a thread. This is not a good omen. It is, time to, is it time to invoke the uh, charge of fascism and draw parallels with Nazi Germany as others have done? I am appalled by the new legislation, but the circumstances today are different. Refugees have considerably more agency and enjoy more rights now, even though many are also uh, victims of trafficking and their rights are imperiled by this government's design. The imperative now must be to ensure that, the, that their rights are preserved. The nationalist rhetoric we have heard is undeniably incendiary, which is why it brings up the spectre of fascism in a country that still clings to its reputation from the Second World War as a defender of liberalism. Arguably, the use of such language is more a precursor than a product of fascism, but as we saw in the attacks on hotels, ho hotels housing asylum seekers and protests organised by Britain First, it is nonetheless a dangerous source of incitement and must be taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't really have much else to say on that. Um, I feel Mr Blitz, Professor Blitz, apparently, Professor of International Politics and Policy at UCL, big ups. Um, so yeah, it's just... um, Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's a it's a it's a war of words continuously, right? It always it always is, always has been, always will be in some fashion. And um, you know, you've got just got to use the words right. You know, what I mean just evoking uh oh, this is not this is what Nazis are doing. It's just um I don't know, just a bit just a bit off base. Um and like you know, like Mr. Blitz said, you know, I I didn't I didn't know this before I read it. Aliens act. Hello, literally done here a hundred over a hundred years ago. Uh, you don't have to look that far. Don't have to go to Germany, and you know that's kind of just the point, right? It's just supposed to, you know, we hear Nazis like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, I mean, just hairs prick up a little bit, ooh, 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 Nazis. But nineteen oh five Alien Act doesn't really, you know, prick up the senses too hard. So uh, I get why it's being mentioned like that. But, um, yeah, but even with that said, you know, it does. There's a precedent being set. And this ain't the first time this language has been said by the Tory party. And that's what's 
that's the dangerous thing here. That's definitely the dangerous thing. Here. I hop into education and we're sticking with the Tories in some fashion um, because here they are um, going on another moral panic parade. Yay! We love moral panics. We love people panicking about shit that really isn't that that problematic. Um, this is about sex education, not the TV show, uh, which is what I'm sure most people gather from the title. It's not the TV show. It's literally sex education, education about sex in schools. In UK schools, that's basically what it's all about here. Um, so I found this article. It was by Moya Lothian-McLean. Um, and it's via Navarra Media. It's called, The Tories Want You to Panic About Sex Education. I literally... I was, I was trying to think like how much do I remember from it. Um, I remember there was like a few lessons in like year five. So how old was I then? <coughs> Probably about tennis. I don't know, or something like that. Um, like banana on a condom, that kind of shit. Watched a film about sex as well. Um, yeah, you know, this wasn't that deep, right? And you know, you kind of um, you kind of gather shit as you go along. Um, and most people just fucking full face, but they full dick first or pum first into into the shit anyway, right? So you're gonna learn regardless. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it's always worthy talking about in schools, of course. Um, but let's see what let's see what the Tories think about this. Let's see what they're going on. They're getting on. Wake wake up, folks! With an X, interesting. Uh, a new moral panic just dropped. <laughs> Honey, wake up! New moral panic just dropped. Uh, not content uh, with concurrent, uh, uh, not content with concurrent outrages around asylum seekers or transgender people. An evangelical faction of the Tory party. Oh, God. Oh, evangelicals. I hate evangelicals. Uh, I remember talking about them, like, I think sometime last year, did a, did a piece about them and how they were kind of like, they were kind of like so, and how they had so much power in America, and they do. Um, literally, transgender shit in America is, you know, deeply rooted in evangelical, evangelical Christian right. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is <laughs> rooted in the evangelical Christian right. I think the article is something along the lines of how they're the 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 largest minority in the world and the one of the most dangerous. And it's I definitely feel that. Um, and it's here as well. It's here in this country as well. Definitely, don't get it twisted. All right, evangelical faction of the Tory Party is leading a fresh attack on sex education because can't know about sex for some reason. Head of the charge is Miriam Case, a Sheffield MP, and one of the 29 intake, coincidentally or not, the year it was announced sex and relationships education would become compulsory for primary and secondary school students in England. Sorry, was it not compulsory all this time? I did not know that. Uh, that's concerning, but okay. Uh, <laughs> fuck. Uh, Wales follows suit in 2022. Scotland and Northern Ireland have yet to make its statutory requirement, despite moves in that direction, apparently. So there you go. Uh, Case is a committed social conservative. An evangelical Christian, uh, which the second bit is much more bigger than the first one, uh, who believes that school children are being exposed to, quote, graphic lessons on oral sex, how to choke your partner safely, and 72 genders. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's so funny. 
That's very funny. And a question posed uh, during PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions this week. She added that, quote, children are being subjected to lessons that are age-inappropriate, extreme, sexualizing, and inaccurate, often using resources from unregulated organizations that are actively campaigning to undermine parents, unquote. Name them. Name the unregulated organizations. Name them all, please. Give me that. Prime Minister Rishi Sunilak uh, picked up the thread and ran with it, of course he did, assuring Kate that he, quote-unquote, shared her concerns, and as a result had brought forward a review of RSHE statutory guidance with the consultation uh, to, yeah, consultation to launch, quote, as soon as possible, unquote. Sunak isn't just taking a politically expedient bait. He seeded this particular offensive in his failed 2022 leadership bid with promises to crack down on inappropriate material presented alongside a rebuke of woke nonsense and accusations of brainwashing. His informal agreement with Case, a letter she organised last week, uh, signed by over 43 MPs, asking him to honour his commitment to, quote, ending uh, inappropriate sex education, unquote, isn't a headache for Prime Minister by the time the invitation. It allows Sunak to once more lead his party uh, in taking up arms in the culture war on which they plan to fight the next election, but with an effective shield from rightful critique, the supposed protection of children. Of course, when you examine Case and Co's claims of exactly what school children need protecting from, the true object of their ire becomes clear. Her assertions come from a report she commissioned under the guise of the New Social Covenant Unit, NCSU, uh, think tank, of course, a think tank, despite professions that isn't, uh, founded, it, she founded in 2021 with fellow Tory MP Danny Kruger, also an evangelical Christian. This website gives a clue as it, as to its interests. Browsers are directly, uh, directed to tabs titled Family, Community and Nation. The NCSU is extremely socially conservative in its 2021 manifesto. Kruger denounced cultural Marxism and globalism, of course he did, um, and argued that heterosexual marriage must enjoy, quote, legal privileges, social status and financial assistance for couples who commit to staying together and staying faithful. I mean, isn't that literally the status quo? (laughs) What what do you mean? Is that not the status quo anymore? Is gay marriage the status quo now? Is that is everyone's gay? What what what's the what's the status quo if it's not heterosexual marriage and experiencing quote legal privileges, social status, and financial assistance for couples who commit to staying together and staying faithful? Unquote. I okay. Unsurprisingly, the NCSU's uh, latest report on sex education doesn't stray from these values. The, educa- the introduction alleges there is, quote, strong evidence that actors with radical ideological position on sex, gender, and sexuality are monopolizing the RSE third sector, putting the nation's children at risk of dot 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 being politically indoctrinated with ideas that are destructive to a sense of self, of family, and even of nationhood. Ah! The R was me, by the way. Unquote. Okay. Evidence that would support <laughs> for such charges is don't bear. Of the claims made by Case and PMQs, the NCSU, uh, NSCU, have I said NCSU? Uh, I've said NCSU all this time. It doesn't matter. NSCU reports cites uh, only two references to oral, uh, oral sex made in material that could potentially be taught to children. One from a book called Great Relationships and Sex Education reads as follows, quote, the key learning here is that it doesn't make sense to talk about gay sex or straight sex, as there are many different ways that two bodies can come together to have sex. 
It may involve mutual masturbation, oral sex, penetrative sex, vaginal or anal, using sex toys and having orgasms together. These activities can be enjoyed or not by people of any sex, gender or sexuality, unquote. Sounds pretty decent to me from a quote. Um, so, yeah, sounds pretty measured, I think. Uh, the second from a resource for teenagers aged 16 or above says, quote, But actually sex isn't just intercourse. It's outercourse too. Sexual touching, oral, kissing, massaging, anything on the outside of the body counts as sex too. Anal sex and oral sex on the penis are also types of intercourse sex. Further, there are uh, lots of different types of relationships, whether that's to do with their sexuality, pansexual, bisexual, homosexual, etc., or formation, poly, uh, pol- polygamous, is that how you say it? Polygamous, uh, open, etc. All types of sex and relationships are valid as long as they're consensual, unquote. Again, pretty, pretty solid. Can't complain about that in my mind. Pretty, pretty solid sex education right there. Uh, pretty lays the foundations very nicely. Very graphic. Uh, I, f- I feel <laughs> Miss McC- uh, Miss McLean is uh, saying uh, sarcastically. Very graphic. Tellingly, what the NSC report chooses to take umbrage with is the apparently banal way penis in vagina sex is described. Why, the report asked, uh, is only heterosexual intercourse dot, 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 described as if it is a perfunctory or mechanical act. Projection, thy name is... <laughs> Oh, that was a bar. That was good. I like that. Uh, As for cases decoration, the children are being taught to choke their partners safely. The evidence is nil. Of course it is. Journalist Paul War. uh, That's how you say it. War. W-A-U-G-H. War. Deduced only... uh, The only connection to it might be on a sex-positive blog for adults. A blog for adults, uh, the content of which is definitely not being taught in UK schools. Ditto the claim around 72 genders that likely comes from a misreported story in the Telegraph that took place on the Isle of Man. Not only does the Isle of Man have its own parliament, which directs its education policy, the teacher of the school in question said, quote, there could be a number of inaccuracies within with the information being shared, unquote, on social media, but who needs facts when you have the raw? This vein of moral outrage isn't a standalone trend. It's another strand of an ongoing wider panic that has swept up the scapegoats, including drag queens and transgender people, and is resulting in renewed hostility towards the wider LGBTQ plus community. Uh, this panic is exported straight from America's evangelical right. Da, 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 da. There it is. Uh, and there's actually a link to uh, a Good Days article that might have been the one I was talking about um, uh, who, that I referenced. Who knows? and sentenced children as the potential targets of groomers, a shadowy threat that's constructed as both sexual and ideological. Also not new, see section 28. It's been taken up by true believers like the Miriam Cates of this world, and far-right groups like Patriotic Alternative, but also by politicians who see it as a means to an end. Sunak seems to be built in this mould, a technocrat who only full-throatedly joined the war on woke, as his run at the Tory leadership was flatlining. Panics like this have several functions. They allow a public bloodletting against minority scapegoats, a channeling of anger that could otherwise be wielded against elites. They also offer those in power the opportunity to take action against an imagined threat, thus framing themselves as both active politicians and saviours of Britain's moral fabric. The Tories faced with the task of explaining why the country has suffered abject decline after 13 years under their governance are pivoting to a narrative whereby social decay isn't a result of economic neglect, 
but moral decay. The fraying of community is the fault of the gays, the girls, the gay girls, and so on. This account falls apart under the vaguest of scrutiny. While the motions led issues, particularly those involving children, scrutiny is in short supply. There has been cheering, pushback. Uh, two aspects of this panic. Protests against drag queens in South London have been repelled by community counter-demonstrations. Yet a sharp rise in recorded LGBTQ plus hate crimes nonetheless illustrates its impact. The Tories are unlikely to re- uh, realise electoral victory via these means, yes, uh, but the miasma, great word, of their moral manipulation will linger long after they have departed governments. And yeah, all I can say is hopefully that fucking happens, because Jesus Christ, it's, it, there, there's literally just a new moral panic every month, it seems. I don't know, just, um, it's always, uh, it's always something fresh on the horizon. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe blacks raping white women will come back, you know what I mean? You never know. Who the fuck knows these days? Who the fuck knows? Let's hop into film and let's have a, let's get some fun now. <laughs> fun part, fun half of the episode. Um, so, someone I've been enamoured with uh, since. Um, I saw everything everywhere all at once last year. Um, is Miss Michelle Michelle Yeo, and um, I've I've done a piece. Um, I titled one episode uh, about forty episodes ago. Now thirty episodes, fifty episodes ago. Now something that's somewhere in the one seventies um, with her with her in it. Um, so I have talked about it before, but um, after she won Best Actress as part of Everything Everywhere All at Once is uh, seven. Oscar wins uh, last Sunday. Um, I wanted to give Michelle Yeoh some flowers once more. Um, I don't know, man. It's just uh, something about her, man, that has always um, it, there's an elegance to her that I've always uh, I've always admired. Um, and you know, her speech was very um, deep and uh, very true, um, and uh, a great call to action um, for you know uh, f- females in any any space. Doesn't have to be creative arts. Uh, doesn't have to be film, but it can be anywhere. Um, that you know, she's in her sixties, and you know, she's still and she bashed out one of well, probably some some would say her best uh, performance yet. Um, you know what I mean? So uh, that, that's a, that's a testament. It's a good testament. So uh, I found this article uh, via the. I I hate the fact that I that I I it's kind of bittersweet doing this because I hate the Hollywood Reporter right now because. Um, as part of um, the article that I told you about earlier in the show, um, when I was talking about mainstream awards, Hollywood Reporter is um, definitely part of the decay for me um, in that uh, they do this specific set of articles, and they're not the only one. They might have been the first one to do it. They were the first one I noticed that did it, but now everyone's doing it. Of them getting uh, Oscar voters uh, to under the guise of am- am- anonymity uh, to basically just shit on... Uh, yeah, to just unload the clip on stuff they voted for what they didn't vote for why they didn't vote for it and a lot of it just comes down to xenophobia racism misogyny it just it just allows them to go mask off and i don't know why a publication like the hollywood reporter and IndieWire and all of these would just allow that um i don't care with this under the guise of anonymity they're just saying that 
they, they, they're shitting on Viola Davis having not watched The Woman King and then called Gina Prince Bythewood the female director. What are we doing here? This is 2023. Grow the fuck up um, and out these people. Or if not, stop amplifying their fucking voices. You're amplifying the completely wrong voices there. And you're giving them anonymity. Garbage. But I found this article by Rebecca Sun. Um, and uh, it's called What Michelle Yeoh Taught Me About Motherhood. So uh, I thought it would be a good, um, a good celebration of, uh, of her. And it's really good. The illustration on here, it's that's your Jesu Hu, um, banging, banging piece of illustration on the start of this article. I really love it. Anyway, let's jump right in. At, the st- at a stage uh, that for most actresses signals the beginning of the end, it perhaps no accident that Michelle Yeoh is reaching her heights 40 years into her career. There's something about Yeoh as mother um, that transcends in every shading and variation. Cool and elegant in Crazy Rich Asians, imperious and twisted in Star Trek Discovery, harried and bewildered in everything everywhere all at once. In every version, she is elementally familiar, particularly to my generation. She resembles the mother we have or the one we want, the kind we fear or crave or both. Four years ago, after I got engaged initially without uh, my parents' blessing, I wrote about how Crazy Rich Asians brought my pain, uh, pain, brought painful clarity to my own standoff, caught between romance and family. Much of my epiphany was fueled by Yeo's exquisite portrayal of Eleanor Young, uh, unyieldingly lofty standards for a child's welfare and the children's realization that there could be no happy ending without her as a as part of it. When I interviewed Yeo for T- uh, THR's 2018 cover story on the film, she told me she only took the role once assured they would not play into one-dimensional stereotypes. In less capable and intuitive hands, Eleanor would be the story's easy villain. Instead, when I took my parents to see the film on opening weekend, my mum left the theatre raving about the character's wisdom and strength, and to my chagrin at the time, found validation in their shared perspective. Ouch. Uh, everything ever all at once, uh, eos, I'm not going to say that anymore, uh, downtrodden laundromat owner Evelyn Wang, uh, couldn't be more different from 1% to Eleanor, but her ten- in her tenacity and insistence on chasing her daughter to the ends of the multiverse, Chasms of culture and generations and literal rocks be damned, I saw yet another dimension of my dynamic with my mother playing out on screen. Both my mum and Yo exude a formidable presence that belies their petite stature. And although I've never witnessed the former deliver a literal beatdown to anyone, she has always been fearless in a confrontation and wields words as skillfully as a swordsman does her sabre. Her fortitude, both physical and mental, is superhuman. A 90 pound septon, septa, septa geranian? Is that how you say it? Oh, I, hate, I hate when people use the geranian things. Like octogenarian. That's the only one I can actually say properly. But septagenarian? There you go. I, said, I think I said it right. Uh, devoting her retirement years to caregiving for my father who has Parkinson's. Despite that work's punishing demand, uh, she has not sacrificed her style and kiji, I hope I said that right, a refined graceful temperament. Also, a, a quality that Yo, even as frumpy Evelyn, also radiates. Neither woman has ever been caught dead in a short, curly Asian mom perm. In Yo's portrayals, exacting expectations, whether a devastatingly deployed, you will never be enough, or clumsily blurted, you are getting fat, are contextualized as springing forth from a deep, nearly inexpressible reservoir of love and concern for one's child. She does justice to real Asian mothers, portraying characters who serve as uh, rep- reparations for the racist, maligning damage that Amy Chua's Tiger Mum 
uh, trope has been implanted in the American imagination. Last year, I seized the opportunity to pitch a feature long on my bucket list, uh, a cover profile of Yo, uh, one that would explore the woman behind the legend. She'd long been a fixture in nation news media, but at the time, I had read little of her personal life in Western articles. In particular, I was curious about her ability to channel with uncanny precision and authenticity the complex and sometimes paradoxical qualities of our own real-life mothers. A quick web search confirmed that she has no biological or adoptive children of her own, and a deeper crawl through old clips surface references to that being a matter of fate, not choice. Another reason for my fixation with the motherhood angle is that I learned last January that I was pregnant. Although the pregnancy was welcome news for my husband and me, suddenly being faced with the impending reality of a new identity ushered new anxieties to the surface. Quote, I don't know how to be a mum. I barely know how to take care of myself, unquote. I wailed one night, huddled, excuse me, huddled next to my mother in her bed during a visit one weekend. She spooned her tiny body round mine and she reassured me that, like a woman, I would rise to the occasion when the time came. The day before my interview video, I had my first ultrasound appointment. A technician swept me with a probe as an image of my uterus, silent and still as a tomb, popped up on the monitor. There's a lot of blood, she said, pointing out, uh, pointing to the cloudiness on screen. My OB said I could take a week to decide whether to go to the medical or surgical route, and this was February 2022, four months before I fully realised what a blessing it is to live in California, where such potentially life-saving options remain available. On our way out... I felt like apologising to everyone in the clinic for my perceived failure. I never made it back to made it back there with my decision. A few days later, my brother called at two thirty in the morning. Mum had an accident. Uh, she had she had spoken of increased dizziness over the past week, which we all chalked up to the strain of solo caregiving. Apparently, she had gotten up in the middle of the night, lost her balance, and struck her head hard on some furniture. Her second call was to nine one one. The first was to my brother. Uh, brother to tell him to come over and stay with my dad so that he wouldn't wake up in the morning frightened and alone. My husband Mike and I arrived at Orange County at 4am. My mother was already at the hospital, a few drops of blood in the doorway leaving a telltale trace of where she had been wheeled out by the paramedics. For the next week, Mike lived mostly within the kitchen, prepping, serving and cleaning up after my father's meals while I was on nurse duty, getting him out of bed, showered, dressed and shuttled around the house. At night, I lay in my mother's bed, soundlessly mouthing a desperate prayer to the heavens. Not like this, God, don't take her like this. And there's a nice photo of them in 2022. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, During that time, I experienced uh, occasional cramping that felt like my body attempting to turn itself inside out. One afternoon, I passed my embryo in the restroom. uh, Mike and I stared silently into the bowl, wondering if the worst was over. I fished out the mess. We were afraid of clogging the toilet if we flushed it wrapped it in a bag and left it on the floor of the garage next to the recycling. When I went, oh, that's, oh, God damn, that's a weird thing to think of, to even picture. Um, ah, that's uh, freaking me out. Uh, when I went back later to check on laundry, Mike followed and we clung to each other and finally sobbed. Our dashed hopes wait, uh, wadded up in bloody tissue on the concrete a few feet away. We stole fleeting seconds of private grief before domestic duties again called. And I wondered if this was what it was to be apparent. Uh, sublimating, sublimating? Sublimating oneself in other service of others. Finding reserves of strength to do what needs to be done. After my mother was discharged with six staples in her head, the challenge became restraining her, f- uh, yeah, became restraining her from getting back to household chores right away. 
Mike returned to LA for work and I attempted to multitask remotely, ostensibly reporting the Yo story from my parents' kitchen table, but in reality, spending my days managing healthcare and researching long-term caregiving options. Uh, Daniel's EOS directors uh, graciously rescheduled after I ghosted them during our initially slated interview. I couldn't imagine the anxiety of ghosting someone during an interview. I, I, the, for, for like a scheduled interview. Um, actually, side note, poor, poor choice, to, poor point to say this, but um, I do have an interview drop in. Uh, I think it's next week. Um, yeah, so next Thursday, there will not be an episode of What's Good. I'm doing a bunch of shit next week. Um, so I do, but I do have an interview, um, nice and lengthy, um, to fill in uh, in place of a regular episode. So just so you know, little heads up right there. All right, end of tangent. <clears throat> Over the next couple of weeks, um, my feature story slowly came together, mostly at night as I typed away on the futon with my parents' uh, study, in my parents' study, revisiting Yo's stunt work inflicted close call with permanent injury and death in the late 90s. I thought about my mother in the next room, determined to heal her body and live another day. But what was most re- revelatory for me was relating to Yo myself. For the first time, I saw her not just as a mother figure, but as a woman who had to reconcile her own hopes with reality, who wanted to be a mother and fully pursued every means to that dream. In her, I found comfort and solidarity, and alongside my friends and other women's courageous disclosures of their fertility journeys, I could grieve my failed pregnancy without entertaining thoughts of shame. Quote, I love kids, I really wanted to have a family, but unfortunately that did not smile upon me, Yo told me during the interview. Uh, it's tough when every month, uh, dot, 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 this is one thing I want, we're all we were doing all those fertility treatments as women up to a certain age you can do it then you have to at some point accept reality unquote i can help but feel grateful yet apologetic that this particular universe in denying you her personal desire uh, desire transformed her into a conduit of motherhood not only to those directly touched by her maternal nature she is mama michelle or papa michelle to her goddaughter's child friends family colleagues but also to generations of strangers who have found comfort and residence in her portrayals of motherhood Quote, she has a very familial energy, uh, everything everywhere, co-director, uh, co-writer and director Daniel Kwan told me. She's very nurturing and can transplant herself in any situation and she's suddenly the auntie or the mum taking care of any, everyone, unquote. It feels unfair to ask any woman, even an internationally famous movie star who has agreed uh, to an on-the-record interview to share such a specific and personal pain as infertility, so I briefly told you about my own experience, just to make the exchange feel more like a conversation between fellow humans. But are you still... Dot, 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 asked Michelle, Michelle Yeo, ever the nurturer. I nod, we're still trying. That's good. I think you have to try it until you can't. And I did. Around Thanksgiving, both of my parents got COVID, so Mike and I began uh, again relocated to Orange County for a few weeks. It was a mirror bookend to the beginning of the year with a few significant differences. This time, we were more practiced at working together as care providers. And I was accompanied by a new presence, one with a strong heartbeat and an equally strong kick. As Yo makes history with her Oscar nomination for Everything Everywhere, I am now in my third trimester. I know firsthand that the future holds no guarantees. But if I've learned nothing else this past year from the strong women in my life, the sorority of infertility, the pregnancy loss, our communal mother, Michelle Yeo, my own mum, is it's that you keep trying while you can. And even if you reach the limits of time, and your physical body uh, being a mother is so much more than a biological capacity. It's a posture, one of preserving generous love. That was nice. I probably should have finished the podcast with that. But here we are. 
that's the third one. But um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, but and it's and it is very fascinating how you know you you she while Michelle Michelle Yeoh won't isn't a mother in that sense in the practical sense. You know, she is to a lot of people, and uh, you wouldn't know it from the roles she how how she just bosses these roles like you know I, I remember watching crazy rich agents and she was very convincing um and everything everywhere was outstanding um especially as it pertains to her performance and you know she rightly won the best actress award and all the others you know in the uh during award season um but yeah it's it's very it's very fascinating when you know someone like an actor is able to portray this thing and portray this um ideal but they're not actually that themselves but yet they are they fulfill it in such a way that uh, it provides comfort for a lot of people um and i imagine i'm not an actor but i imagine that's the best reward you could possibly get We finish on something fun. This is a music piece um, that I just uh, I just caught, and it's, it's it sounded fun. Um, you know, just from the title, it, it pops it pops out. Uh, it's called "I Was the Spotify of the 1980s," the Italian pirate mixtape empire that brought pop to the people. Great title, right? Great title. Really, really sucks you in. So it's written uh, by Giorgio Giglioni uh, via the Guardian. Um, so let's drop by him. Sorry if I butchered the name. In 90s Italy, the ultimate seal of approval on a tape wasn't that of a cutting-edge rec- record label or a sticker quote from a tastemaker publication. It was the varsity-style hand-printed banner that read, Mixed by Eri. It adorned everything from regional rap records to collections of Gregorian chants and birdsong. And the fact that it was far from legal was no deterrent. Not for customers, nor even the musicians that the Lord of Italy's pirate cassette business was ripping off. Enrico Frit- Fratasio uh, created the Pirate Mixtape uh, label in the early 1980s, selling his tapes to illegal stallholders in his working-class neighbourhood in Naples, which they flogged alongside bootleg cigarettes. By the late 80s, Eri had spread, around, spread throughout Italy and beyond, to Romania and Hong Kong. At its peak, the Mixed by Eri group employed 100 people, including Enrico's brothers, Claudio, Pepe and Angelo, uh, with an annual gross of around four million pounds in today's money, Marco Messina, a member of 99 Posse, a Neapolitan band who dominated Italy's hip hop scene in the 1990s and 2000s, acknowledges that they owe part of their success to Mixed by Eri. Quote: If I think of it as an individual, it's money that they made from me, and I haven't earned. But in social terms, they have spread my music, allowing it to be better meta- metabolized. Unquote. In Italy, the brand gained a cult status and Eri a divisive reputation. Some see him as a criminal who got off rich, who got rich off the backs of artists. Others as someone who brought good music to a wide audience. Now there's a biopic about him co-produced by Netflix. Born in Forcella, a working-class neighbourhood in Naples, Enrico was introduced to uh, music as a byproduct of his father's work in alcohol smuggling. "Quote: I was 12 when my father sent me to an impre- to be an apprentice in a in a record studio to keep me away from the wrong crowd." Unquote. The Comora. Uh, I didn't realize it was C. I thought it was K all this time. Comora. Okay. Uh, drug dealers, he says today, speaking from Naples, 
I came from, uh, I came back passionate about music and started making mixtapes on demand. He opened his first business at 17 after winning a small amount of money in a football bet. His first production was a remix of Ancora, a romantic hit by a Neapolitan singer, Gennaro Di Crescenzo, with a French cover of the same uh, song. Uh, despite lacking the equipment to finesse the remix, it was so successful, and Rico recalls that, quote, people went to the discotheca Meridi- Meridionale. God, I'm, I'm bottling it. I suck at Italian. Uh, I love saying it. I love saying Italian shit, but I, I just suck at like, reading off, off rip. One of the largest record stores in Naples asking for the piece by Di Crescenzo, mixed by that guy from Forcella, unquote. Enrico started to professionalise his operation. When he issued a pirated copy of the compilation album Studio 54, collecting tracks from the famous New York club, as mixed by Italian radio DJ Foxy John, Enrico adopted his business Sobriquet, I think I say so, and retitled the release Studio 54, mixed by Eri. As it expanded, his brothers joined the business. The eldest Pepe became the manager, driven by, quote, the need to put food on the table and by the birth of his daughter, unquote, says Enrico, uh, and it was Pepe who expanded the market beyond Naples, importing CDs and cassettes from Bulgaria and visiting expos in Asia to keep up to date with the new technologies. We were pushers of music, says Pepe, speaker from Naples. We used a quality product, we made a commitment, we listened to the tapes to see how the treble and bass were adjusted, we had an immense catalogue. With the entrepreneurial experience of my brothers, we went from 50 copies to 300,000 of our great hits, says Enrico. More than just a copyist, Enrico was a tastemaker. At the end of one album, he might include two tracks by another artist that the listener might enjoy. I was the YouTube or Spotify of the 1980s, he said. The money was not the point. I was building compilations. Each one took me a couple of days. I was doing a serious curator job, unquote. Excuse me. The mix by Airy Brand became so famous that there were even imitations, pirated versions of pirated tapes. That's amazing. (laughs) Eric was a kind of trademark, albeit an illegal one. The high quality of his productions was such that that he branded his tapes as false originals, with a special stamp advising customers to buy only original fakes. La cassette con photocopy non sono Eri. The cover's red. Cassettes with photocopied covers are not Eri. Why don't you just say that instead of making me do the Italian? All right. <laughs> Another quote. Most of the other pirated tapes were of poor quality, including the ones pretending to be mixed by Eri. Theirs used only good quality products, says Neapolitan ethnomusicologist. I love saying that term. Ethnomusicologist Simon Frasca, author of the book mixed by Eri, La Storia dei Fratelli Fratasio. Uh, Frasca interviewed the Fratasios uh, beginning in 2019. She believes the story, their story reflects the cultural and economic dynamics of Southern Italy at the time. Quote, everything was completely illegal, but the law was tolerant because they solved the problem of unemployment. Unquote. Her, her theory reflects the brothers' lived experience. Where I lived, the whole neighborhood lived on cigarette or whiskey smuggling, says Pepe. Um, I think I'm saying Pepe, right? It's two P's and an E, so I'm saying Pepe. Uh, it all seemed illegal to us. If the police entered the shop and asked us what we would do, we would answer... We're making tapes. Messina of 99 Posse acknowledges too that those who bought the cassette could hardly have afforded the original disc. Hence the Fratasios were able to carry on for years. Another quote. Occasionally authorities came and confiscated everything but they had so many laboratories that the next day they started all over again, says Frasca. Uh, Frasca. Uh, despite distributing their releases through the same network used by cigarette smugglers, Mixed by Airy became the third biggest record label in Italy alongside the international giants RCA and Sony. 
Eventually, inevitably, the climate shifted. With the advent of CDs, which cost more than tapes, the music industry pushed the Italian authorities to apply the law. In 1996, they proposed a bill introducing tougher punishments for piracy. In the 90s, it also took a stricter approach to criminality in southern Italy. In 1997, the Protasio brothers were arrested after an, invest- after an investigation involving phone tapping and undercover policemen. The Protasio brothers and their father Pasquale were sentenced to four years. Most of them served under house arrest. It was the end of the mixed by Eri era, but its le- legacy lives on. For many Italians, it was an opportunity to get to know international musicians for the first time. I discovered Prince through Mixed by Airy, says Frasca. For other artists, Mixed by Airy became a sort of king, a sort of a kingmaker. Many singers, especially Neo Melodici, a quintessentially Neapolitan genre that happens to be popular with the mob, asked to be included in our compilation, said Enrico. The, mo- uh, the movie presents the Fratesio brothers neither as criminals nor heroes, but kids who love music and ended up in over their heads. The real brothers seemed to like it. Enrico himself DJed at the movie's premiere in Naples. Eri, the legend, is back to his passion, wrote the local newspaper Il Matino. Mixed by Eri still enjoys a fan base. There is a Facebook group of enthusiasts on eBay. An original Mixed by Eri compilation has been listed for €150. Euros. On Mixcloud, the Italian DJ Renato DeVita runs a page where you can listen to old tapes and other, another page with remixes by younger DJs who claim to have been inspired by him. Uh, quote, Eri wasn't a DJ, he wasn't a producer, he wasn't a musician, it says on the latter. Eri was a superhero, like Zorro, unquote. I love that. I really love that. I don't know, I just, I, I you know, obviously pirating is such a, such a, you know, such a, like a dirty thing, but, you know, we all, we all, we all have pirates, we all pirate some shit, you know what I mean? You know, we, we pirate, we got some pirate films, you know what I mean? Pirate music, we, we did all that, bruv. We, we, I went through the Lime White era, or my sister did technically, and then hooked me up after that, after the fact, right? You know, Lime Wire existed, shit like that, you know what I mean? I, uh, you can get songs on the internet right now, bruv, like, just, just randomly. Um, regardless if, you know, you have a Spotify account or any of that, like, you, you can still, you can still get a bootleg if you really want to. Don't know why you would these days, but you can. Um, so yeah, man, it's, it's crazy, but I do, I, I find that story very interesting. The whole story is so fascinating and, uh, yeah, I might, I may or may not give that, uh, give that, um, biopic a spin. Um, it seems like a, uh, a portal to another world. And, um, I was just, I was just trying to visualize as I was like reading it and the visuals come out very nicely to me. So it sounds very energetic and, uh, you know, just, uh, and passionate and colourful. I love I love the sound of it. Sounds great. Alright. Let's finish there. On a fun note. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I would try to tell you been what's good. Intro music was too much by vanilla, thanks to Chill Music, who dropped their um spring essentials uh this for this year uh recently. So uh go give that a spin. Uh you can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High, who also dropped an album uh with his longtime collaborator uh, Memnock, uh, it's called 93 Gold. Go give that a spin as well. Uh, it's nice and quick, very replayable. Um, I reviewed it on DITD, so go give that a spin as well if you want. And uh, you can also find his link in full channels, of course. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. Enjoy the interview next week uh, ahead of time. But until then, until the next time, take easy. Ladies and gentlemen.